Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and senior reporter, Ellie Philpotts, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're looking at whether GPs will be prepared to take industrial action following the imposition of a contract for the second year in a row, and what action they might actually take. We discuss the results of the latest British Social Attitudes Survey, which assesses public satisfaction with the NHS. And as junior doctors step up pressure on the government to improve their pay by announcing a four-day strike, we look at what this could mean for the NHS, as well as what's happening with the pay offer for other NHS staff. And finally, we've got a bit of positive news on COVID vaccination and long COVID. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Before we start this week's episode, I'd just like to remind everyone that we did a special episode of the podcast last week looking at the issue of assisted dying and whether it should be legalised. This is our first documentary and we've had a lot of positive feedback about it. So if you've not heard it yet, please do have a listen. You can find it in our podcast feed on all the usual platforms or on the podcast page of our website at gponline.com. First up this week, we reported on steps that GP practices could be asked to consider in a future ballot on industrial action on our website last week. This comes after changes to the GP contract were imposed on the profession for the second year in a row. So Nick, it looks like we could soon find out whether general practice is reaching the point where it could join junior doctors, nurses and others in taking industrial action. Yeah, we've heard from a couple of sources now that there's a GPC meeting, so a meeting of the, the BMA's GP committee for England planned for the end of April. And we're expecting plans for a, a ballot of GPs over possible industrial action to be finalised at that meeting. The BMA's GP leaders are currently going around the country talking to the profession about the imposed contract and its implications and about next steps. And we've talked about the impact of the imposed contract and the possibility of industrial action on the last news podcast. We now seem to be moving closer to action Emma, you were at a webinar by the BMA last week where they talked about the GP contract and what happens next, including industrial action. What did they have to say? Yeah, so that was the first of a series of webinars that the GP committee is holding to discuss the contract changes and perhaps more importantly, as you mentioned, what happens next. So as part of the session, the GP committee explained what it's been doing to prepare for possible industrial action and what could potentially be on the ballot. The BMA, the GP committee leaders who were there were very keen to point out that the BMA has been working on this for some time. There's a team in the BMA which is being led by Dr David Wrigley, who's deputy chair of the GP committee in England and is also on the BMA council that has been looking at possible options for industrial action for months, they said. Perhaps no surprise they've been working on this for a while We know there was a lot of unhappiness about the contract being imposed last year as well. So I think this has been expected for some time that we could reach this point. If you remember, there was also that indicative ballot of the profession on industrial action at the end of 2021, which suggested that there was backing from GPs for some sort of coordinated action in the face of rising pressure and lack of support from the government. So this is not something that's, you know, just been sprung on the BMA. So... The ideas the BMA GP committee is currently suggesting might be on any ballot. And let's be clear, these are just suggestions at the minute. And it might be that other things come up that are also considered for inclusion. But the idea that the BMA put forward at that webinar last week are the following. So the first is full practice closures for a day, which is obviously quite an extreme option uh, that we've not actually heard about before in any discussions on industrial action. Another option is the closure of practice lists. 
So this is not letting new patients join the practice, which obviously the majority of GP practices across England did this would have a really big impact as well. The next one was establishing lengthy GP consultation patient waiting lists similar to what happens in secondary care. Lengthy was the term that the BMA used, and it wasn't exactly clear what that would mean. The next one was severe capping of daily consultations per GP to safe and sustainable levels, which presumably would be in line with the BMA's safe working guidance. And the final one was submitting undated contract resignations. So where we go from here, so the GP committee is asking for feedback from GPs on these ideas ahead of that meeting in April that you mentioned, Nick. And then at those meetings, those options and any views that the GP committee members get from grassroots GPs will be discussed and a decision will be made about whether to ballot the profession and what should be on that ballot. If we do end up at the point of having a ballot, Dr Wrigley said that GPs will be provided with extensive information about any options they're asked to vote on and what each of those could mean for practices, because obviously there are potentially significant implications for practices taking industrial action. I think not least of those is a a potential breach of contract, isn't it? That's exactly what the worry is. And the BMA is very aware that there is that risk is there for practices taking industrial action. And I think that's why they've been looking at all of these options for quite a while. And and from what I gather, you know, they've been seeking legal advice on the ramifications of any steps that they would eventually put to the profession. You know, and obviously we don't know what that legal advice is. So we need to wait and see what accompanying information is provided to practices in the event of a, a ballot. Also worth mentioning as well that the timing of any industrial action is also being considered by the BMA and Dr Wrigley said that they would want to time any action to make sure it caused maximum impact. What sort of sense did you get from the meeting about the the general appetite for industrial action? I think there's certainly appetite for industrial action within the BMA because I don't think, you know, we wouldn't have reached this point if they weren't quite serious about that. During the webinar, the GP committee leaders, which obviously include Dr Wrigley, who I've mentioned, acting GPC chair, Dr Kieran Sharrock, as well as uh, deputy chair, Dr Claire Bannon, they were all very clear about setting out what's brought us to this point. You know, in particular, what happened during contract negotiations for this year's contract, they were really clear that if the profession does take industrial action, this will be absolutely critical in order to protect patient safety. Dr Wrigley said that he often comes across GPs in the past, and I'm sure there's GPs listening to this who will be worried about taking action because it could cause patient harm in some way. But his point is that patients are already coming to harm. Further patient harm will occur and general practice will further decline unless the profession gets more support from the government. And Dr Sharrock stressed that point as well. You know, we talk on the podcast all the time about the problems facing general practice. The workload's huge. There's a massive shortage of GPs. And we've seen nothing really from this government and certainly nothing in the last two or three years of the GP contract that will address these problems or stop them getting worse. And so, you know, that's the backdrop to all of this. And Dr Wrigley highlighted something that I think we've talked about before, Nick, on here. You know, funding in the core GP contract is basically based on each patient consulting about four to six times a year. And in reality, GPs are seeing people six to eight times a year. So the numbers just don't really add up anymore. And that's just not sustainable. And it's not safe for practices to have that level of workload alongside staff shortages. And I think the general feeling from the GP committee is that the government is not serious about providing the support and resources an investment that general practice needs to deal with that increase in workload. 
So is the um, GP committee, the BMA generally still talking to the government about all of this and the, the fallout from the imposed contract? Yeah, it's important to point out that channels of communication are still open, albeit not sure how much is coming both ways there. The BMA wrote to Health and Social Care Secretary Steve Barclay last week, urging him to scrap the contract in position, particularly scrapping those access requirements that we talked about on the last news podcast. So there is a chance that a ballot on industrial action could be avoided, but that chance is quite small, I would think. There's not really any sign that the government's necessarily willing to budge on this. I think, you know, the BMA accepts that taking industrial action is a really big ask of GPs and that it will be, you know, potentially a difficult decision for lots of GPs. But I also think that the GP committee is clearly reaching the point where it thinks there's potentially no other way to secure a better deal for practices without taking some sort of action. So, you know, while the BMA is continuing to try and push the government to get more support for general practice, I think the emphasis is also really on trying to galvanise the profession and practices to act together to get the maximum number of practices taking part in any industrial action that does come to pass. I think the view is certainly that any action is likely to be more successful and more likely to get more support for general practice if it causes maximum impacts, um, as I mentioned, and it will only do that if the majority of practices take part. On that point about just how likely practices are to take part in industrial action, Ellie, we um, wrote a story this week about a poll by an LMC in the Midlands that suggests there's quite significant support for industrial action. So what did the polling show in terms of GP support for industrial action and the forms of action that they might be prepared to take? Yeah, so the results of this poll were really quite overwhelming and they just reflect how bad things have become for GPs and practice managers alike. So the background to all of this is the imposed contract for next year. And this survey that was done by Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland LMC actually found that 96% of GPs and practice managers were dissatisfied with a contract. So as you can see, a really, really high number. And that dissatisfaction has actually led to a real willingness to take part in these forms of industrial action. So this survey found that 76% of GPs and practice managers would consider taking part in some form of industrial action. 61% of the total were ready to provide an emergency only service for one or more days. And 43% said they would be prepared to close their practice completely for a day or more. And then on top of that, we've got nearly 9 in 10 respondents saying that they'd be prepared to drop unfunded work. And more than 70% would be ready to adopt some elements of BMA's safe working advice. And as Emma said earlier, that could include capping appointments. So this survey actually only took place last week. And I think that really shows the strength of feeling is pretty obvious across the LMC and probably many of us at, at the moment. There was also a pretty strong warning about the future of general practice from the Leicester LMC chair, Dr Grant Ingrams. And he said that general practice as we know it could actually become a thing of the past within the next decade unless the government changes its approach and treat the profession with some respect. Dr Ingrams added that it's patients who suffer as well as GPs. So in his county alone, there's actually over 300,000 patients who essentially don't have a GP because of these ongoing workforce shortages. Just to pick up on that final point, what Dr Ingrams means by saying 300,000 patients essentially don't have a GP is that there are far more patients per GP than the level that's considered safe. And and basically, his LMC area, along with most of the rest of the country, as it happens, is significantly under-doctored. 
And that's something you can find out more about with our GP Insight tool via the GP Online website. I'd really urge people to go and have a look at that data and see how their area compares with the rest of the country in terms of the GP workforce. But on the polling by Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland LMC, it's a really interesting window into GP's mindset ahead of a potential national ballot of the profession by the, the BMA, as you said. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Emma, that one of the forms of action the BMA is considering asking GPs about is a full shutdown of practices for 24 hours. And that's a much tougher form of action than, for example, closing patient lists or uh, you know, moving to urgent-only appointments for a day or more. And the fact that 43% of respondents to this LMC survey were prepared to consider that is really significant. And I also spoke to Dr. Ingrams this week, that's the, the LMC chair, and he said that he felt GPs in the area were generally fairly conservative and that the level of support for full closure of practices for a day had really surprised him. And that's because in in previous versions of industrial action that general practice has taken part in, there was one around pensions a number of years ago, the sort of uptake involvement in that action was quite limited in this particular area. Basically, if he's right, maybe there's a chance that a national ballot could see a majority of GPs back full practice closures. I mean, ultimately, even if that doesn't happen, this local survey is an interesting sort of suggestion or marker that suggests that support for other forms of action is likely to be really significant. Before we move on, I'd just like to highlight to listeners that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in London on Friday the 9th of June. This one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be five streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, dermatology, cardiovascular medicine, respiratory care and much more. Each stream provides delegates with 5.5 CPD hours of learning. You can register for your free place and find out more information, including the full programme, at mimslearninglive.com. This week saw the publication of the British Social Attitude Survey. Now in its 40th year, the survey showed that public satisfaction in the NHS had slumped to its lowest ever level. Nick, what exactly is this survey and what were the key findings about the NHS as a whole and general practice more specifically? The British Social Attitude Survey has been running since 1983, so for 40 years. And it asks the general public about their attitudes to health and social care services. The survey is carried out by the National Centre for Social Research, which is a charity, and then two think tanks, the King's Fund and the Nuffield Trust, produce a report each year on its findings. And this year's results aren't happy reading, basically. Public satisfaction with the NHS and with general practice, along with various other elements of health and social care services, is at its lowest ever point. The proportion of patients who are very or fairly satisfied with the NHS overall has fallen to just 29%. That's a seven percentage point drop from what was already a pretty bad place last year. And for GP services, satisfaction has slipped to 35%. So it's a bit better than the NHS overall, but not much. And we reported last year on this same survey showing that satisfaction with GP services had hit what was then a record low of 38%. So this year it slipped even further. And just to sum up some of the other things it looks at, satisfaction with NHS dentistry has hit a record low of 27%. Satisfaction with social care is just 14%. Satisfaction with A&E fell to 30%. Satisfaction with inpatient and outpatient hospital services has also fallen uh, to around the sort of one-third mark. And in terms of why people are unhappy, the top reason for dissatisfaction with NHS services was waiting too long for GP and hospital appointments. That's 69% of people picked that out as a problem. 
And the next most common issues people were unhappy about were that there aren't enough NHS staff and that the government isn't spending enough on the NHS. Just coming back to the level of satisfaction with GP services, which, as I said, is now at just 35%, what's really remarkable about that is that until as recently as 2016, satisfaction with GP services had never been below 70% in this survey. So that's over a 35-year period up to that point, roughly. And now, just a few years later, we're at half that level. So this shift is absolutely seismic. When it comes to the NHS as a whole, these low levels of satisfaction, although we're now at a record low, it isn't quite such uncharted territory. I mean, basically, in the, in the late 80s and the mid-90s, under John Major's government, public satisfaction fell to around the 35% mark. So it's not a million miles from the current level. But there's an interesting chart in the latest report on this survey that plots how satisfaction has changed with different governments. And it, it's really notable how satisfaction rose with investment in the NHS under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, peaking at about 70% at the end of, of Labour's last spell in office. So that was a, a peak of 70% for the NHS as a whole, which is kind of where general practice was all along until quite recently. It gradually declined under the coalition and then Cameron and May and Johnson governments before absolutely tanking in the uh, the past couple of years of turmoil. It is pretty bleak, isn't it, really? I mean, it obviously reflects falling funding, austerity, particularly I would imagine those th- figures around social care. Despite it being so bleak, the findings probably aren't that surprising given the challenges that the NHS has faced over the past few years, you know, around funding, as I mentioned, and workforce. But what have people had to say about the results? I mean, precisely that point that this isn't a massive surprise is, I mean, that's certainly one thing people have said. But the BMA and the report's authors also said this has to be a wake-up call for the government. There have been one or two other wake-up calls recently, you might argue. The, the BMA has said that the, um, the NHS is now a shadow of what it could and should be after years of neglect and underfunding. One of the comments from the RCGP's chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, I thought summed it up quite well. She said, these figures reflect the fact that there are simply not enough GPs or other members of practice staff to deliver the care and services that we're trained to deliver. This is just another reflection of the crisis facing general practice, a declining workforce dealing with rising workload, ageing increasingly complex population and the fallout for the pandemic, which has helped to drive up the NHS waiting list to an unprecedented level. Some of the responses point to the fact that there's public support for more spending on the NHS. And, and that's obviously what the service is crying out for, both in terms of investment in you know things like premises and infrastructure, but also in terms of pay at a time when the cost of living has spiked and doctor's pay is down by a, a quarter or more in real terms compared with 15 years ago. The demand for that investment in the NHS at a time when huge swathes of the NHS workforce are obviously in disputes at various stages with the government over pay is crucial. Emma, last week, the BMA announced that junior doctors would stage an unprecedented four-day walkout in April. You've been writing about this for GP Online, and what's the latest on this? This represents a pretty significant escalation in the the junior doctors' dispute with the government. Uh, The four-day strike is planned to run from 6.59am on Tuesday the 11th of April to 6.59am on Saturday the 15th. Of April. I mean, we've talked about the reason for the strike before on the podcast, so I won't go into all of that again. But suffice to say, it's clear that talks between the government and the BMA have completely collapsed. 
So both sides did get back into the room to talk about pay after that three-day strike earlier in March, but obviously this has proved fruitless. The BMA has said the government failed to make a credible offer. They've said the government is not serious about resolving the dispute and the Junior Doctors Committee has said it has no confidence that the negotiations can be successful. The BMA has also said that the government is continuing to add unacceptable preconditions to talks, perhaps in a sign of how bitter this is starting to become. You know, After the BMA released its press statement announcing the strike, the Department of Health and Social Care put its own statement out saying that the BMA had itself put out preconditions on the talks of a 35% pay rise, which it said was unreasonable. That led the BMA to issue a further statement saying that that was not true and that the 35% claim, which is basically what it would cost to address the 26% real terms pay cut that doctors have seen since 2008, That 35% was their starting point for negotiations. They said they were willing to meet with the health secretary at any time to negotiate what any final offer might look like. So, you know, as I said, it all seems to be coming increasingly bitter. And yeah, the minute is not looking hopeful. So this four day strike is, is going to have a pretty significant impact on the NHS if it goes ahead, isn't it? It will do. NHS England has previously said that the three-day strike junior doctors undertook earlier in March, that led to 175,000 appointments and operations being postponed. The NHS Confederation, which represents managers and NHS organisations, they've estimated that up to a quarter of a million appointments and operations will need to be postponed if the four-day walkout goes ahead. The Confederation said that would have a significant impact on patient care. They've also said that this next set of strikes will be really complicated by the fact that the consultants who kind of helped out in the last strike, they will have accumulated additional leave from providing cover during that first walkout. So hospitals potentially will be unable to call on them in the same way that they did for that last three-day strike, which the NHS Confederation says poses a real risk to patient safety. Obviously, The timing of the strike as well, directly after the four-day Easter bank holiday during the school holidays, that's also going to cause a real headache for hospitals, I would have thought, if lots of staff have leave planned at that time. I'm sure that the kind of disruption the strike would have on those four days probably factored in the decision to go then. So yes, I think it's all going to be very difficult for hospitals and obviously also for the patients who will be affected by any cancellations or postponements. Well, hopefully some of those potential problems and the scale of them might be an incentive for the government to get around the table with doctors' leaders and start to sort this out. There is a sign that disputes with other parts of the NHS workforce could be uh, solved, though, isn't there? Yeah, well, that's some potential good news. I mean, this is the deal that's been put forward for NHS staff paid under agenda for change. And that covers most staff in the NHS, including nurses, ambulance workers and others who have been on strike in recent months. So the offer includes two one-off bonus payments for 2022-23, plus a 5% pay increase for 2023-24. The two bonus payments for last year are made up of a a flat 2% payment for everyone, plus another tiered payment. So how much you get for that second payment depends on your band. So those at the bottom get quite a bit more than those at the top in terms of percentage terms. In in cash terms, there's, there's not much difference. So there's been a mixed reaction to this from the unions. Most of them including the Royal College of Nursing, Unison, the GMB, Royal College of of Midwives and some others have recommended it to their members. But Unite and actually the Society of Radiographers have not recommended it to their members. 
So what happens next is union members will vote on whether to accept this and then that will determine whether it goes through or not. Most of those ballots opened this week. The RCN and Unison one closes in mid-April and other ballots close at the end of April. So, you know, we need to wait for those results. One other positive thing is that the Treasury this week said that it will provide extra funding to cover the deal if it is accepted. Existing budgets had only allowed for a 3.5% um, in the upcoming year. And the Treasury has said it will make extra funding available, although it's still not entirely clear whether this will cover the full amount of the uplift or whether savings by the Department of Health or indeed any other departments will be required to make up some of that. However, the Health Secretary has insisted there'll be no impact on frontline services or quality of care because of the deal. If the deal is accepted, then this potentially puts practices in quite a difficult position in terms of the pay rises that they can offer their staff. The uplift of the GP contract for the coming year includes a 2.1% uplift to cover rising expenses, which includes staff salaries. Staff in GP practices aren't covered by Agenda for Change, although although some practices do use it to benchmark pay. But, you know, it's highly unlikely that practices will be able to afford a 5% pay increase for their staff, given that they're also dealing with huge rises in other costs. And going back to what we were talking at the start of the podcast, from what I understand, you know, the BMA really did make the case for more investment in practices to help them provide staff with decent pay rises. But, you know, obviously, it seems like that's fallen on deaf ears with the government. I think, you know, there is genuine concern that practices in some areas, particularly in cities where living expenses are higher, will will really struggle to retain staff if they're unable to offer decent pay rises in the coming year. Finally, we just have time for our good news slot, which this week is about long COVID or perhaps more accurately, COVID vaccinations. A study published last week in JAMA Internal Medicine found that vaccination with two doses of a COVID vaccine halves the risks of people developing long COVID. So this is a really positive argument as to why vaccination is so important. The study was a meta-analysis by researchers at the University of East Anglia, and it's believed to be the largest study of its kind. The research was actually looking at risk factors for developing long COVID, and this was just one of uh, the researchers' findings. So it's actually a really interesting study for some of the other findings as well. So all of this is helping to provide a better understanding of who might be affected by long COVID and also you know, supporting the case for vaccination. You can find a link to our story about the study in the description for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick and Ellie. We're back next week, so please do join us then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news effects in general practice on our website at gponline.com. 